Welcome to Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. I'm your host, Ellen Wasselina. This episode marks the beginning of a series of interviews, discussions with Dr. Stephen Blank. And this particular episode uh, is about Joe Biden's foreign policy agenda and challenges. Now, this episode will be about uh, governance, the administration officials, who is implementing the policies, how COVID uh, has changed the priorities of U.S. foreign policies. Can Joe Biden and his administration improve relations with its European allies and in NATO, for example? And then there's many other topics that I'm going to be discussing with Dr. Blank, uh, Russia and China, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, the strained transatlantic ties, the North Korea threat, uh, a new Middle East uh, on the heels of the Abraham Accords, and the Paris Climate Agreement. Now, I'll just briefly list the upcoming episodes because um, I will be doing these next few episodes with Dr. Blank. Uh, the following episode will be on preserving the Arctic, our last frontier. Um, then following that will be commanding the seas on the Silk Road, China's manist strategy in the Indian Ocean, and the Horn of Africa gateway to geostrategic power rivalries. I hope you'll join us for these episodes. Very uh, interesting discussion that I'm sure you'll enjoy. Welcome to my conversation with Dr. Stephen Blank. Stephen, good morning. Good morning. Good morning from, from Washington. Right. Yes. <laughs> it's good you know, to see you. It's likewise. Good to see you. And, uh, uh, I understand that from what you were saying that all, you, it, things are almost as cold in Paris as they are in Washington. <laughs> it's still a bit chilly and it's still early in the year, but uh, you know, we had snow a few days back, so uh, we, we are still uh, in winter. And uh, I think the groundhog said there's going to be six more weeks of winter, if I'm not mistaken. Well, anyway, I'm so happy. If, if I can uh, paraphrase a French proverb, en hiver comme en hiver. <laughs> so. <laughs> excellent, excellent, Stephen. Listen, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I would like to just read a short bio, if you're okay with that, just to introduce you. And we know each other well, but maybe our, our listeners don't. So I'm going to read the very short bio. Uh, Dr. Stephen Blank is an internationally recognized expert on Russian foreign and defense policies and international relations across the former Soviet Union. He is also a leading expert on European and Asian security, including energy issues. Since 2020, he has been a senior expert for Russia at the U.S. Institute of Peace and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. In 2013 to 2020, he was a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. So I'm so glad you could join us, Stephen. We're gonna talk about a subject that you and I uh, both uh, know quite a bit about, and uh, of course you know a lot about. And we're going to talk about Joe Biden's American foreign policy. Now, I've divided up um, topic into several questions uh, that I've sent to you and that we have gone over together. So if you wouldn't mind, first of all, I have to ask you though, Stephen, tell us um, what the ambiance, what the atmosphere is uh, since the Capitol attacks on January 6th in Washington. Well, the ambiance uh, here is one of uh, continuing polarization. And uh, the trial of Donald Trump has not reduced that. If anything, uh, Trump's supporters are even more further dug in uh, and entrenched than was the case before. Now, President Biden is on the road this week trying to sell his program. And uh, I think he has reasonably good chances of getting most of it through. But it's very clear there will be almost no Republican cooperation with this administration. And what's more, the Republican Party is profoundly split uh, but too many members of the rank and file 
support Trump and Trumpist kinds of ways of looking at the world and policies for there to be any hope of genuine cooperation. And I think that realization is going to sink in very quickly. And that was evidence, wasn't it, Stephen, uh, in the impeachment trial and those Republicans uh, that voted uh, to acquit and those that also voted to have uh, him uh, you know, convicted. Yes. Uh, the uh, majority of the Republican Party continues to follow uh, Trump's line, and he's obviously trying to take control of the Republican Party for at least the next congressional election, if not the next presidential election in 24. And uh, as a result, I think the polarization will, in will in increase, or at least continue. Okay, well, so, uh, you know, uh, probably like me, you've probably seen the book that Richard Haas has, has written, and I do believe that's part of our discussion today, that foreign policy does begin at home. And if the American uh, policymakers in the Senate uh, and in Congress are, are so divided and so trenched in, and, and, and you just said something, uh, I wanted to ask you, if, if Joe Biden's going on the road, will you also see maybe Trump's followers going to those um, meetings and try to disrupt things? Well, Biden's agenda is actually quite popular. It enjoys That's much good. more than majority support. The problem is not so much on foreign policy issues. It's on domestic issues. Sure. It's on uh, culture, race, not so much culture, well, culture, race, econ some economic issues and, and so on. So as a result, uh, we have opportunities in foreign affairs for uh, cooperation between Senate, the Congress and the White House. For example, on Ukraine, there is a very wide bipartisan consensus that Ukraine should be supported, Russia sanctioned, and that we should continue to do that. There is a uh, strong consensus of uh, animosity, suspicion of China, strong consensus on it, uh, support for Israel, there is a lot of suspicion of Turkey uh, in the Congress. There is also uh, a lot of belief in the, or support actually, I think, for the continuation of the uh, strategic arms control process. Although that, that okay, so, so, not so big. But yeah, so let's, let's, let's get in. There are areas where Biden and the Con where the Biden administration and the Congress will be able, I think, to find common ground in foreign affairs. The problem is domestic affairs, and there it'll be much more difficult. All right. Well, let, let's get into it then, because you're taking me exactly to where I wanted to go. So, very briefly, and if you can, um, I, I always feel that the policymakers are, you know, important to those policies that they're putting through and I would just like to list some and I and if you have any comments uh, I'd be grateful if you could comment on them what do you think about John Kerry being the climate envoy well uh, Kerry is deeply committed to uh, attacking climate change and getting international cooperation after all he helped negotiate the Paris climate change treaty yes the, the real issue though is what individual states do. Uh, the Republican Party in this country has steadfastly refused to accept the reality of a climate change crisis in the face of all the science. Uh, and Donald Trump was one of the leading exponents of this and tried to roll back many re uh, regulations on this. Biden's signature of the treaty is a welcome development. But the real issue is going to be what do individual states do to fulfill the treaty? It's worth noting, although the Europeans do not say this, but sotto voce, as, as you might say in Italian, many European states have gone back to oil and coal. 
and uh, despite signing the treaty. Uh, so again, the issue is not what's on the treaty, which certainly points in the right direction, but what is actually happening, you might say pun intended, on the ground. <laughs> and there, there the, uh, there the record is rather more ambivalent or ambiguous. Because the United States under Trump, despite Donald Trump's attacks on climate change, continued to cut its hydrocarbon use. Huh. All right. As well, let's, far, let's move on. Because... I think through 2019. Now, wow. lots of things well, due to the pandemic. Yeah, let's move on. If, if I may, these are just, this is just, the, these are just cabinet positions. Um, I'd just like to just get briefly through them and then we have our real issues to discuss. So just a few words, if you would. What about Anthony Blinken? Now, of course, here in France, many people are very excited to have a secretary of state that speaks French, that grew up in France. What do you know about Anthony Blinken? Well, I, I, I don't know him other than through his official biography. But the reason Biden chose the people he chose is that he knows them, he's familiar with them, they don't need to find out how to do their job. They could, they are able to start from the moment they're confirmed or sworn in, and they can hit the ground running. And that's what's most important to him. So, I, I mean, although I don't know these people personally, for the most part, uh, they are seasoned. They don't need a guide to the uh, uh, office. And therefore, they're all, the minute they got in, they started working. That's that's wonderful. As a collective, oh. well, that's, I think, what underlies this. Now, of course, many of them, maybe even most of them, had re reasonably authoritative positions during the Obama administration. Which I was going to say, isn't this a layover, too, from, from the Obama administration, most of these coming from? Well, in some respects, yes. But Biden was vice president then. So he worked yes. intimately with them. And yes. those people he liked and thought highly of, he's brought with him back First. into this administration. And uh, the real question is, what have they learned from their experience of the 2017 period? And how are they going to apply it to a fun fundamentally transformed situation? And we're only beginning All to right. get a glimpse of that. And I'll just do one more because I know this is going to take up a lot of time and I really want to get into the issues, but I'd just like to mention Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and the op-ed that he published today in the Washington Post, if I may cite him. Alliances are not a burden, they are a benefit to both our individual and our collective security. Our shared principles of democracy, individual liberty and the rule of law do not make us more vulnerable, they make us stronger as a team. Uh, there was a nice op-ed this one. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. What do you know? Do you know anything about the Secretary of Defense? Well, again, I, I don't know uh, Secretary Austin personally, but I, I fully subscribe to what he's saying. I mean, there's a famous quote by Churchill that the only thing worse than not having allies, than ha the only thing worse than, than having allies is not having allies. Uh, <laughs> and uh, of course, he, he knew this from his very intense experience. The fact of the matter is, that it's not enough anymore to say that we support the alliance and we're not going to treat our allies the way Donald Trump did. Uh, allies are now, as uh, Angela Merkel said, uh, presenting arguments to the US. The question is whether the United States and its uh, allies can work effectively and cohesively together on a very extensive and difficult agenda. And that is by no means clear yet. I mean, That's there, right. there will not be recriminations, there's not going to be uh, animosities or things like that. But the real issue is, is there going to be effective cohesion and cooperation? And we and don't we'll get, get into it. Nord Stream we'll, we'll 2. Into, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it in, in a little bit, if I may. I have a, an order, as you know, of questions, and I'm trying right. to keep us on point here. So I have to ask you, though, Stephen, um, and, and you've lived through the, this pandemic like I have, how has the COVID pandemic really changed the priorities of U.S. foreign policy? Well, it has made domestic recovery the number one priority. 
to get back to Richard Haas's book. So yes. domestic recovery, and I don't only mean in the sense of recovery of people's health, critical as that is, but it's economic recovery, recovery of government capacity to lead the country, which Trump undermined, mm -hmm. uh, the repair of damaged social structures and relationships, the uh, revelation of continuing and perhaps even growing appeals to racial uh, enmity. All this was revealed during the Trump administration and by the COVID uh, pandemic, which is still with us. And yes. until these problems are addressed, we are going to be operating from a somewhat weakened condition. And I might ask you, Stephen, Sorry to interrupt you. How, how is the vaccination uh, going in the United States? Well, it's been a mess, to be frank. I mean, uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, know, I know the situation in, in Maryland, where we live, and it was, yes. it was quite disorganized and bad. It's been, I mean, it's progressing far too slowly. Uh, the administration, to its credit, has stepped in and bought millions of vaccines. They're going to Wonderful. be distributed among uh, the population. But uh, if you look at the states individually, it has been a very uh, disappointing uh, process. And it reveals a lack of state capacity and the consequences of Donald Trump's abdication of federal responsibility here, where by leaving 50 states on their own to compete against each other. And the results of that last for a long time. And I'm we're sure. experiencing that now. And what was, would it have been important to maybe to, you know, use the federal mandate, even in masking or in vaccinations, or I understand other centers opening all over, but, you know, as you know, our country is very big and the states are individual entities more or less and are governed separately. Uh, would it make sense to have federal mandates to sort of put everything under one roof? Well, in my opinion, they should have uh, invoked the Defense Production Act early last year. They didn't. We saw the catastrophic results of this. Um, close to half a million people have died. Millions have gotten sick. And uh, I think that's for a lack of federal leadership in many respects. And I think that's one of the reasons Biden was elected because people understood that Trump was not going to attack this illness. He was going to uh, continue doing whatever he does and did uh, watching TV for four, six hours a day and tweets, but not governing. Oh my goodness. No. Yeah. All right. Um, so let's let's move on then. So COVID is, is a major issue, as you know. So let's go back. We started talking about NATO, and I'd like to go there now. Can Joe Biden and his administration improve relations with its European allies in NATO? And I just would like to quote uh, uh, the former ambassador, Kay Bailey Hutchinson, uh, who gave an interview to CNBC on February 15th. And she said, I think the alliance is strong and unified. And I think everyone knows that the US is essential in NATO. So what would you say, Stephen? And I know you wanted to tell me more about that. Well, that's what they, that's what people say publicly. Privately, uh, there's a lot of repair that has to happen. I mean, they can have all the meetings in the world and issue all the communiques. But the fact of the matter is that there are disturbing signs of a, of a lack of cohesion in NATO. Turkey is one example. Uh, okay. Another example is uh, the lack of defense spending by allies. I, I mean, for example, Germany's military is, is not ready to, for uh, present uh, responsibilities. Uh, they haven't shown up. Uh, I mean, I remember when I was teaching, I, I was giving a lecture in Canada, and a German officer said to me, this is about three years ago, that if we go to the German people and say you have to spend more on defense, they'll say, well, we did that 80, 90 years ago, and you see what happened, so why should we do it again? A lot of Europeans refuse to believe in the threat. The COVID has made things worse because it has indicated the priority of domestic reconstruction. Uh, very, a lot of European governments essentially want to hide and uh, until there is cohesion in NATO and a, a unified threat assessment and improved 
defense posture that meets the actual Russian threat and an improved economic and political response to the Chinese challenge, not to mention terrorism and other issues. A resolution of the problems between Turkey and other allied members. It's not just Greece. Sure. And uh, a unified position vis-a-vis -vis Russia on such issues like Nord Stream. Then it's yeah. difficult to say NATO is strong, NATO is strong, NATO is strong, when actually uh, the challengers to that cohesion do not believe it and see no reason why they should. So is it is it within uh, so the EU or Europe where the cohesion is lacking? Is it between the transatlantic link where it is lacking given uh, the former Trump administration? Is it challenges or threats that have changed and mutated? Is NATO really, I believe, um, it was uh, President Macron that said, you know, NATO is brain dead. Um, is NATO still useful in your eyes? Is this something that needs to keep going or should the Europeans build their own defense? The first part of your question is the answer is that it's a co combination of all of the above. Okay. Transatlantic on both sides. A lot of European mistakes uh, and short-sightedness, mm -hmm. uh, as well as American, miscon misconceived American policies. Mm -hmm. NATO, nevertheless, is essential because uh, I say this as a Russia expert, Russia is at war with Europe. And uh, Russian officials and generals admit as much. I, I, I was at a conference in Berlin three years ago and I said this and a Russian general in the audience said, that's right. Now, it's not a shooting war. This no. is not World War II. But it's a multi-dimensional war where Russia is trying to undermine NATO, corrupt and subvert European institutions from uh, Portugal to the Baltics and the Black Sea. And is also threatening militarily every European country with nuclear and conventional weapons. Furthermore, if you read Russian official statements, Russian doctrine about nuclear weapons is that they will use nuclear weapons in a first strike mode if they believe a missile is coming, called launch on warning. Okay. Uh, it's also that the Russian government has said that they if there's any threat to the stability of the government, that that's the cause for using nuclear weapons. And if you know your Russian history, every major war that Russia goes into represents a threat to the stability of the Russian government sure. because of the inherent nature of Russian governance through the centuries. Sure. So Europe is at war and it has to recognize that it's being attacked in all these ways, information, energy, and so on. And until we get a true realization of that fact. You're not going to have the kind of cohesion in the European Union or in NATO that we really need, even though their mission is different and their responsibilities are different. So is it, a, is it, is it again, if I can go back to the second part of my question, is it a, is it a question of identifying and, and agreeing on the threats at hand? Uh, like before 9-11, nobody could agree on what terrorism was uh, and the definition of terrorism. Is is this a question of coming together and defining clearly what the threats are in your mind? Well, that's a necessary, but it's not a sufficient step. Obviously, okay. it's necessary to define on a unified basis, a more or less unified basis. To agree at least on it, yes, I would think the so. The challenges and threats Europe and the United States face. Right. The real issue after that is, what are we going to do about it? And we can talk about strategic autonomy all day long. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is that strategic autonomy essentially means that France goes off and conducts its own separate dialogue with Russia. Merkel and Germany do that as well. The Poles and the Balts and the Ukrainians feel left out. The Balkans becomes a battleground between Russia and the EU. And you may have identified at least rhetorically a common threat, but you have had no common plan of action. 
And then, of All course, right, we well, have trade issues, Iran, and so on. So, which we'll get to in 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 just a moment. All right, I'll continue on with on my questions then. So here we come to the main topics. Of course, Russia and China. So. President-elect Joe Biden has said that he will stand up to China and Russia. But unlike President Trump, he has stressed the need to work closely with allies and international organizations to present a unified front or united front against two countries that Washington considers its foremost competitors. Trump administration viewed competition with China and Russia largely through a realpolitik lens, and I want to get your thoughts on that. Christening a new era in foreign policy as one of great power competition. Biden is more likely to cast the matter in ideological terms, which Trump did not, seeing the situation not just as a contest among nations for power, but also as a struggle of like-minded democracies against rising authoritarianism. Stephen, do you think this is the main fight today as the world divides into democracies and authoritarianism? It certainly is a fundamental battle. Uh, from, I would argue, again, that the greatest threat to Russia is not the U.S. military. It is democracy, which as Victor Hugo said, was an idea armed with bayonets. The <laughs> Russian government's main enemy is any form of autonomous self-government of the Russian people not France, not Belgium, not the United States, not Germany, none of the above. The so it's Alexei Russia, Navalny then? Absolutely. Is this the colored revolution last step in the former Soviet Union that's come full circle since the fall of the wall? No, it's not the colored revolution. It is the ongoing, colored revolutions is a phase or a phrase uh, used to designate a certain period of revolutions, but it is a constant struggle in Russia between the power, vlast, and obshistva, society, uh, where society wants more freedom and the authorities want more power and more power to steal, to be perfectly blunt about it, because that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a criminalized state. Uh, and, if you, and people who don't believe that should read, for example, Catherine Dalton's book. Putin's people about that. The fact of the matter is that's the threat to Russia today is not NATO. NATO threatens nobody in Europe. NATO is an organization of self-defense. What threatens Russia is democracy and the desire of, its, of many of its own people for freedom. It's the same threat that threatens Lukashenko in, in Belarus as well. And the only answer they have is force. And therefore, it is necessary also for there to be a transatlantic cohesion that is robust in order to promote peaceful change uh, in Europe, particularly in these countries, because the effort by these countries to maintain dictatorial regimes, and I don't use that word lightly, I know. is the recourse to force. Force at home, force abroad. Force takes many guises. It's, it takes the form of information and cyber strikes, corruption and subversion of governments, hit teams operating in Europe to assassinate Putin's rivals, um, perhaps Lukashenko's as well. And uh, we, we are seeing all of this on a daily basis. Organized crime in Europe, which is an extension of the Russian government as well. So how, how does China how does China fit into this? Um, do you see Russia and China, for example, coming together, uh, or are China and Russia vying for that uh, same competition of great power status, or at least regional power status? Well, uh, as you know, I've written a great deal about Russia and China, so my views are on record. I believe that they are allies, not de jure. Nobody believes that there's a de jure alliance. But mm -hmm. de facto, there are many, if perhaps still a minority of analysts who believe that Russia and China are allies striking at uh, the rules-based world order or international liberalism. Because that is the, the only way they can be safe is by increasingly dictatorial and repressive means at home. Just look at what China is doing. Now, I mean, there's a lot of people quibbling about what how to describe 
what they're doing about their uh, Muslim population, the Uyghurs. In my book, yes. it's genocide, pure and simple. Uh, a regime that has to resort to that kind of repression cannot be described fundament as fundamentally stable. We also see China throwing its weight around in world affairs, often threatening force and using forceful rhetoric and subversion and corruption. Uh, we see cases where Russia and China are acting together. Uh, there's been some cases of information warfare in Europe. Other examples of that. So yes, I see them as allies. Others, of course, disagree. We can have, you know, another discussion about that. We can debate on that another time. We have so many things to touch on. I'll take you to Iran now, if I may, with the Iran nuclear deal. The Obama administration's signature foreign policy achievement of 2015 in Vienna has been on life support since President Trump's unilateral withdrawal in 2018. But since the election, the deal has come under fresh assault. Across multiple fronts, the nuclear agreement, formerly known as the JCPOA or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, was the product of years of negotiation between Iran, the United States, and five other world powers, Britain, China, France, Germany, and Russia. In return for ending the sanctions on Iran's oil exports, Tehran dismantled its Arak nuclear reactor and agreed to export or eliminate the bulk of its stockpile of enriched uranium. The pact allowed Iran to continue to make low enriched nuclear fuel, the kind used in nuclear power plants, but only under international oversight with a limit of 300 kilograms or 660 pounds, far short of what it would need to build a singular nuclear weapon. Now, what uh, is your view, Stephen, vis-a-vis uh, -vis American foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Iran? This is going to be a poison chalice for the Biden administration. Because once Donald Trump withdrew from this, the Iranian government decided, well, we're not going to obey, uh, pay attention to this anymore. And they are moving towards acquiring a nuclear capability. The problem is that there is no alternative that anybody has yet come up with that will prevent Iran from building nuclear weapons other than this treaty. And it's by no means clear that Iran will go back to it. Hmm. Now, there are those, for example, in Israel and Israeli intelligence who believe that Iran never fully observed the treaty and has all along been trying to build a nuclear weapon covertly and now much even more overtly. And they clearly would like to strike, those people who support that view would like to strike directly with force at Iran. The Biden administration is unwilling so far to do that. Um, the Europeans would like to see Iran go back to the JCPOA. Yes. But Tehran will not listen to Europe. Hmm. The only forces it will listen to are the big three, Russia, China, US. And I don't think those three are united. I'm not even sure that the Biden administration has yet formulated its line on how to get Iran back into this treaty. The problem is, even if Iran were to go back into the JCPOA, and let's, you know, for the sake of argument, say that, that is not going to stop Iran's other mal uh, bad behavior, terrorism, subversion, incitement, and so forth. There is, short of force majeure, no way to stop that. And no one is going to attack Iran. That much is pretty clear. Oh, yeah, well, nuclear power, I would imagine, and very Well, it's not a nuclear big... power yet. I mean, but the point is, no one is going to attack Iran because the, the Iraq case showed what, what that leads to. It doesn't really lead anywhere. And, uh, we will bring pressure and threats and so on, but direct force is probably quite unlikely. And I suspect the Iranians know it. So this is going to be one of the most contentious issues, I believe, of the Biden administration. We have not yet seen what the administration is going to do on Iran. They are still considering their own options. So it is premature to say what US policy is 
war is going to be. So does Joe Biden, have you heard Joe Biden wants to go back to the JCPOA? Uh, the Europeans, I know, want, you know, Iran to, and they said they never left the JCPOA. It's just the U.S. that left the JCPOA, so that means it's still valid. Uh, what have you been hearing on your side of the Atlantic? Well, the Iranians say once you left it, it's no longer valid and we're not going back. Okay. All right. Now, well, you'll keep I mean, us... That we'll have change, to have a... That can change, but, uh, you know, right well, now... That's where we we'll, are. We'll, we'll come back to you on that because I know things are moving quickly and I'd like to move on, if I may, to the forever wars. Although this administration oversaw the destruction of the Islamic State's caliphate in Syria and the special operations raid that killed its leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, remnants of the group remain active in several countries. Now, meanwhile, the U.S. military is still involved, Stephen, as you know, uh, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, and other terrorism hotspots after four years of Trump voting to bring troops home. President-elect, in this case now President Joe Biden, is expected to face a similar landscape and political pressure as he takes over the White House. Now, I know these are, and I've been seeing, and you've been monitoring this as I have, uh, the peace um, deal with the Taliban, um, and then I guess a retreat from, from Yemen. What can you tell us about those, those hotspots, Stephen? It's always easier to go into a war than to get out. The famous line by Bismarck, he says, woe to that statesman whose reasons for enter leaving a war are not the same as for entering it. And uh, if we leave these places, um, they will disintegrate. If we leave Afghanistan, the Taliban will take over and launch a bloodbath. And they have not lived up to the terms of their agreement. And as I, as I heard the news this morning, uh, the administration has a quandary as to what to do. In Yemen, uh, we didn't put troops in Yemen, but we have said that we will no longer support uh, the Saudis there. Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, will that lead to a intensification of the warfare inside of Yemen? Perhaps. Certainly in the Horn of Africa and Somalia, what we see a very dangerous situation getting worse. Uh, the Russians have now announced a base in Sudan, and they want naval bases all up and down the Horn of Africa and the Red Sea. The Chinese and are- And that's another discussion, Stephen, that you and I are gonna have a little bit later, right? Right, right. And I mean, I'm writing about it. I mean, I'm preparing an article about this. But it's also, there's a civil war now in Ethiopia. This could involve neighboring countries like Sudan and Eritrea and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, beyond that, uh, problem is when the United States forces leave, what replaces them as a force for order? France, although Macron said it would be a mistake, is under great pressure to abandon the Sahel. Nobody it was said this morning that it was said this morning that uh, yesterday even that President Macron said that they won't abandon, even though I think they've lost 85 men. Um, they, you know, they, they, you know, it would, people would like them to abandon. It's, it's a very hard fight. And I can tell you every time we see funerals and honor guards to do these French soldiers come back, um, it's a hard sell, would you say? It's a very hard sell. The problem is once you've gone into a place and insisted that you have the responsibility for preserving order, how do you leave? Who takes uh, yeah, over? How do you yeah, I agree. They, I agree. They've not solved. It may be an insoluble problem. Because if we're going to leave these places, who will actually take over? Probably the people who are most ready and willing to use force. And who that is that? Be, uh, Taliban. The Houthis. Okay, and in the case in the case of Mali or in the in the Sahel, Islamic terrorists. Okay, probably. so the terrorists are going to fill the void that the U.S. leads leaves rather. Uh, so it's probably terrorists, best that that the U.S. Look. Forces antithetical to Western interests will fill these voids. Whether it's in Central Africa or, uh, or Sub-Saharan Africa, the Sahel, Afghanistan, wherever, Syria. How about Russia, China? Where, where, do this, where do their footprint, where does their footprint take them? Now that they're building all these bases. To what end? Is it purely trade, business, nuclear, you know, plant construction? What, what is your feeling on that? 
Uh, air and naval bases are fundamental changes in the strategic environment where they are located. Mm -hmm. So these are not simply about monitoring trade or protecting international maritime commerce. It's about projecting power. And it's throughout the Indian Ocean. Myanmar is another example. You know, the week before the coup, uh, the Russian defense minister Shoigu was in Myanmar. Uh, there's a lot of belief that China support and, and Russia support the coup in Myanmar. And the Russians want in Myanmar things that they had, they had achieved in other negotiations with countries like Sudan before they got a base. Does Russia want a base in Myanmar? I think China probably does also. Uh, China is building naval bases across the Indian Ocean. Is it, isn't that part of their, their, you know, one belt, one road, silk road, blue? Yeah, it's part of the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, yeah. or OBOR, yeah. one belt, one road. But it's also part yes. of the projection of Chinese military power, quite deliberately. And it's also, they're using these uh, opportunities as well to strike at India, for example, in Central Asia. Uh, certainly and to challenge India in the Indian Ocean, uh, mainly in Southeast Asia, but also increasingly to the West, to the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea and so on. And the Russians want could, to be the major naval power here also. If we could finish up, Stephen, if I may, on Syria. Uh, what uh, What is going to happen in Syria? Syria, of course, is mired in a civil war. Um, what is the U.S. going to do about? It? I know it, you know, it did some uh, launch some missile attacks, if I'm not mistaken, and then uh, our troops were uh, attacked in Iraq, which notably they were attacked, I believe, yesterday uh, at a at a at a base uh, inside or outside the green zone. Have you heard anything? Yeah, there was an, there were attacks, and also in uh, Erbil in the uh, Iraq. Uh, Erbil, that's Iraqi it. Sorry. Look, as long as we're there, we're going to be a target. The problem is, what are we trying to accomplish there, and can we accomplish it with a minimum or a token force? Uh, I'm skeptical that you can accomplish any positive or lasting strategic change without major intervention. And I don't believe in inter small-scale interventions unless you can actually secure your strategic objectives that way. So, again, this is a quandary for the Biden administration. What, and, and no one has an answer. What is it that the United States is seeking to achieve Indeed. in any of these areas? And how can it do so? And until and unless you get an answer to that question, those questions, you shouldn't go in. The problem is to get out and accept the fact that we've lost. The, the, that, that someone else will fill the fun. void too, like you said. Right, because I mean, yeah. what's going to come in? Hostile powers will occupy those factions. They could be the ISIS, they could be the Taliban, it could be China, Russia, satellite there of Iran, some other unfriendly movement or government. All right, but let's you know, move on, which takes us. Uh, I'm going to move you on, if I may, to strain transatlantic ties, which we, we touched on a little bit earlier. So four years after Trump's attack on European institutions have left many allies wary of relying on U.S. leadership and concerned about his populist approach could triumph over the next turn in the White House. There are several issues that predate Trump that could further strain relationships. Most Europeans know that beneath the headlines of European euphoria on Biden, the U.S. and Europe still have significant differences, as you pointed out, of interest that cannot be waved away, said A. Wes Mitchell, a former Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, he cited um, long-standing U.S. opposition to this natural gas pipeline from Russia to Europe that you mentioned earlier, Stephen. The U.S. push for Europeans to spend more on their defense, which you also mentioned earlier, and an uneven playing field in trade. Um, there's a whole lot of subjects in there, I know, but um, I, I'd like to go over them with you, if I may. Is um, is the American leadership in question? And can it be mended or can it be repaired? Uh, is America still, uh, Joe Biden said, I believe, not too long ago, U.S. will lead. We want to lead. First of all, U.S. leadership is under challenge. From You gave a lot of examples of that. Yes, yes. Secondly, the Biden administration wants to lead. 
I think the, the public wants America to lead. The problem we have is, it goes back to what Colin Powell said, we do not want to be the uh, policeman, the world policeman, but when crime is committed, people come running to us to ask us to do, to say you should do something about it. Yes. But the, our ability to do something about it is going to be limited if our allies are not on the same page, and which we talked about. In other words, the test of American leadership now is to devise frameworks, both intellectual and, and, and uh, operational frameworks for action, where there is unity of purpose and understanding. So uh, like we said, yes, it's not enough to have a common threat assessment. You have to have a common strategy to respond to that threat assessment. Indeed. And then we could have all the conferences in the world and all the people in NATO carrying papers from one office to the other, agreeing with each other. But unless their governments are going to make the necessary investments, it doesn't work. Sure. So, and it, US, is the United States a bit weary too, like you said, of sure. being the world policeman? Does it want to step back? And now, as you said, in, you know, much earlier on in our conversation to uh, become, and I'll use words that have been used, isolationists. Will it be looking inward now to repair the damage done, especially from COVID, which COVID revealed of infrastructural weaknesses, social links? Um, is, is, is U.S. ready? Is the U.S. ready to take on that leadership role? And will our allies accept that role? Or are they looking for somebody else? Well, you asked a lot of questions. Uh, I know. <laughs> first, I know. <laughs> first of all, no, we are not going to isolationism. That's for sure. Yes, the priority is domestic recovery, but it's uh, recovery in order to strengthen the ability of the United States to play the role on the world stage that it has marked out for itself. To use the French phrase, it's a question of déroulez pour mieux sauter. You know, retreating in order to jump further. It's uh, true, though, that the answer to the questions as to whether or not this uh, will be successful has yet to be determined. Mm. And it requires it requires also that the allies carry their share. I mean, it's not enough for Macron and Merkel and others to get up there and uh, argue with the United States. The question is, what do they bring that is going to defend Europe? not just Germany or France. And the fact of the matter is that uh, uh, if NATO is eliminated de facto or even de jure, it's very likely that we go back to what was described in the 90s as the renationalization of European security agendas. It's every man for himself. And uh, there are many, there are still a few people left to live through what that meant 80 years ago. <laughs> uh, that, that's no longer feasible as a way of defending Europe. It might be feasible as a way of defending Portugal, but it's not going to defend <laughs> Poland, and it's not going to defend Europe, and it's not going to defend I, I Germany or France either. I, I, I agree. Um, all right, um, let, let's move on now um, to the Middle East. Uh, I know you know a lot about the Middle East and the Abraham Accords terms of Washington's relationship with close ally Israel and regional partner Saudi Arabia changed under President Trump, who emboldened that leadership uh, while muting U.S. criticism. Much of his Middle East policy, Donald Trump's Middle East policy, um, will revolve, sorry about Joe Biden's real Middle East policy, I beg your pardon, will revolve around trying to rehabilitate and eventually replace the deal, although there was little indication now that Iran will go along with that uh, Israeli opposition for such diplomacy to be overcome. Uh, Joe Biden, for example, is likely to resume public criticism of some Israeli settlement activity uh, while also resuming public backing for Palestinian statehood, said Martin Indyk, a former U.S. ambassador to Israel. But Biden has welcomed diplomatic deals uh, among Israel and three Arab neighbors that Trump helped midwife that are bitterly opposed by the Palestinian Authority. Biden also said that he will not revisit the relocation of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So, Stephen, there's a there's a whole bunch of things in there, I know, but what uh, do you think um, will, will go on? Trump was very pro-Israel. Uh, will, will Joe Biden be 
the same? What is he? What have you been hearing in Washington there where you are? Well, uh, Biden is is pro-Israel. I mean, but the point is pro-Israel does not mean that you necessarily agree with Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, you know, Trump, Trump's, uh, Trump's Israeli policy was written in Jerusalem, not in Washington. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, his defenders will claim that they got all these agreements and that's a substantial argument. But the Democrat, I mean, the new administration may well try to push the issue of Palestinian statehood. My, my concern here is twofold. I mean, first of all, mm-hmm. whatever Washington does, I don't think that many people in Israel have much faith in the Palestinian Authority or in the Palestinian movement's ability to govern itself peacefully. They've been uh, betrayed too many times. Going back Oslo, uh, other cases, I mean, the, one could think about, and as the, the late Abba Evans said that the Palestinians never, well, he said the Arabs, but in this case, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And that's certainly been true with the Palestinian Authority. And as a result, a lot of people got tired, even in the Middle East, got tired of waiting for Godot. In other words, the Palestinians to step up and act responsibly like a state where they can govern themselves peacefully despite Israeli repression and pressure. So the United States may push for this, but the question is, are the Palestinians ready, willing, and able to take the necessary actions? And there I'm skeptical. So what, what does uh, the Abraham Accords change? Sorry, with well, you know, uh, all these- it breaks the- It breaks the united front of Arab states uh, for further breaks. And it also creates the basis for an anti-Iranian coalition. I mean, the uh, UAE uh, and uh, uh, Bahrain, the, the opening embassies, I think it's Bahrain, the opening embassies in Israel, business is going on. Uh, Morocco? Yeah, Morocco, potentially Sudan. Uh, mm-hmm. They're going to open embassies in each other's capitals. Business will take place on an open internationally uh, standard. And uh, there will be diplomatic and perhaps even further intelligence and military cooperation against Iran. And that's all to the good for a lot of reasons. But uh, whether or not that's not going to stop Iran from behaving the way it has for the last 40 years. For Iran to become a different kind of state, there has to be a regime change. And it's going to come from within. Now, it could be abetted by external pressure, but it nonetheless will be an action led by domestic elements, not by foreign. Do, do uh, you see that element. coming anytime soon? No. Okay. I, I mean, I, I can tell you, I had conversations with people in the Trump administration mm-hmm. in 2018 and said, well, we don't think there's going to be, the government's going to be there in five years. And I said to them, you know what, we've heard that song before. Uh, and it didn't play. Uh, here we are in 2021, and I don't see it happening yet. <laughs> All right. Um, so there's a lot, yeah, a lot no, to do. These agreements are very good. They they mark a big step forward, but there are manifold, multiple challenges in the Middle East. Uh, the United States is necessary to help uh, bring order into them, and. Uh, help guarantee them, but it can't do this alone, and it cannot substitute for the uh, will of the people in cases like Iran. And we cannot, and we can't rebuild the Syrian state either, for example, you know. I was going to say, what does it do for the neighborhood, and is it it a plus that these accords have come forward, that trade can begin, or that airplanes, like uh, the first time that, I don't remember which country was able to, you know, put an airplane down in Israel. Uh, is this, no. you know, this? Certainly, it, it's beneficial for everybody. Okay, it's a win-win. And it, right? and it, it's, yeah, it's a win. It's a win-win outcome, to use that phrase. Would you and say? It might yeah. also galvanize the Palestinians into realizing that if they don't seize the opportunities that have that are there, they won't be there anymore. Uh, one of the reasons that they're in such a bad state is because they have consistently misplayed. Uh, their hand, truly, admittedly under adverse conditions, but nevertheless, uh, they have failed to show the, the statesmanship necessary to bring about mutual uh, harmony in the region. 
All right, Stephen, our time is coming to an end. And as you know how much I am uh, attached to the Paris Climate Agreement and climate issues in general, I'd just like to finish up with this. Um, uh, quote, uh, I'll immediately start working with my counterparts around the world to do all that we possibly can, including by convening the leaders of major economies for a climate summit within my first days in office, said Joe Biden. He wants to put the nation on the path to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, to ensure that the shift towards cleaner energy brings new U.S. jobs, which would be good news, especially coming out of the pandemic, and to listen to and engage closely with activists, including young people who have been very vocal, who have continued to sound the alarm and demand change uh, from those in power. The U.S. has a lot to do to rebuild trust, said Harit Singh, global climate lead for the advocacy group Action Aid. It really needs to find a way to convince the world that this time the U.S. is genuinely ready to do its share. So I'd just like to finish up with this. I don't know if you're familiar with when you can tell me what's going on in Washington. Do you feel that maybe this time the, you know, the, the, you know, the U.S. will come back to the climate agreement, the Paris Climate Accord, or not? Well, the U.S. has already said it's going to come back. I mean, Biden signed that. So that's happening. And, and as far as the summit, I imagine that the uh, discussions about that are happening behind the scenes with other governments. But the biggest okay. single thing yes. is not the advocacy. It's a decision by General Motors to, that all their cars by 2035 will be electric. I saw that. That, I saw that. is That's much said, more important you know. than declarations by treaty. And as I said before, whatever is written in the Paris Climate Accord, the question is what governments are doing. If, if, if yes. despite signing the agreement, they're going back to coal because of uh, concerns over energy, then the treaty is just, you know, a museum piece. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think, uh, if I may, I think- It will be uh, driven by a government that is committed and wants to see it happen, and by economic actors who understand that the opportunity to do so is not only uh, profitable, but it's urgent. Yes. General Motors yes, I think is going to trigger, and you'll see this, uh, I, I believe, happening elsewhere. And well, the same I believe thing is, in I believe Elon, I believe, I believe, I believe Elon Musk set set the whole thing off and is way ahead of everybody else in terms of you know clean cars, electric cars. Um, and, and then it started a trend basically. And when you see uh, the, the, the worth or the net worth on the stock market, uh, people are getting the right idea that this could be a real money maker, but Stephen, behind that, we need clean energy to power all these electric clean cars. So I'm right. wondering, you know, what do you think and where do you think they're going to get the energy from this to, to keep these all these cars running? Renewables are becoming more affordable, first of all. So as the price of renewables goes down, they will there will be more renewable energy available for this purpose. Second, the government here, um, despite Trump's rhetoric, coal is going to be phased out. Uh, and what we have to, and what we are seeing in energy markets is a turn towards gas, including LNG, liquefied natural gas, away from oil and coal. And hydrogen. Uh, yeah. So. U.S. energy policy needs to encourage the opening up of new sources of gas and of LNG, particularly to supply uh, areas that are import dependent, like Europe. That also means political action. Now, I'll give you one example that I think I've come to the conclusion. Eastern Mediterranean, major political issue. A lot of animosity between Turkey on the one hand, Greece, Cyprus, Egypt, and Israel on the other. The, yes. It would be a great bonanza if for both the Middle Eastern countries involved, as for the Europeans, to get that gas out of the Mediterranean to Greece, where it could then go to Europe. But the only way this is probably going to happen 
is if they negotiate a deal with Turkey, unpalatable as that is to both Paris and to certain elements in the United States. But it's necessary yeah. because nobody's going to challenge Turkey in the Mediterranean otherwise. No. So no. Build, the, build the pipeline to Turkey if that's what it takes. The pipeline then goes to Greece. The Turks will get their, their share of gas, obviously. But yes. that pipeline will plug into the network of gas going to Greece. You can build a second one to the Greek terminals that are being established in order to get that gas distributed all over the Balkans and then into Central Europe. It will alleviate Greco-Turkish and Franco-Turkish tensions. It will bind Europe closer to the Middle East. It will create peace and more economic opportunity in the Middle East. And it will undermine Russia's ability to use energy to subvert governments all over Europe. And I think that's a pretty good outcome. And I think that's an excellent way to, to finish our session today. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephen Blank. Stephen, for joining me today. It was an excellent discussion. Just for our viewers to know, you and I have a number of discussions scheduled in the weeks to come, and I would encourage all of you to sign up to join us. Thank you so much, Stephen, for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day now. You too.